Our scripture passage this morning comes from Matthew chapter 2, starting in verse 1. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him, and assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream to not return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Let's pray together. Father, we're so thankful for your love. And that's ultimately what we're here for. That's ultimately what Christmas is about, Advent. It's about your love. That you are love. Magnificent, marvelous, matchless love that you became one of us for us and for our salvation. May it cheer our hearts to think about what ultimately stands behind what we're doing in this season. God, I'm thankful to see the farmers. Pray that they would have an encouraging time as they're back home and uh, return to their ministry in Germany. I pray they should be preparing hearts there uh, for their return. And that they would have an encouraging time uh, with family and friends while they're home. God, I'm also thankful for Vincent O'Dell and his birth and Randy's health. We're thankful for new life. And we pray for them as they adjust to to adding yet another little one to their home. That you'd give them energy and patience and sleep and perseverance and encouragement to know uh, the work that they're doing is so sweet and vital. God, we're thankful for the donation that allowed us to be able to renovate this room, not only to make it look fresh, but more importantly, to expand our seating capacity. And we want to pray for those who are not here yet, uh, who will come here. I pray that you would draw many and that you would save many. We want people to come to know you and we want people to be conformed to Jesus. That's why we're here. That's why we exist. So I pray that we would continually have this outward focus, knowing that we're blessed in order to be a blessing. Guys, we think about being with family this week. We pray for evangelistic opportunities. No doubt many of us have family members that don't know you, and we pray that you would make it easy for us to turn a conversation to you. Give us softballs. We want the opportunity. So would you help us? Would you open a door that we could speak of you? And Lord, as we turn to your word yet again this week, we pray that you would do what you love to do. Would you tune our hearts? that we might not only sing your praise, but live lives of praise. We pray it in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, Christmas really is an answer to prayer. It's really important for us to understand the Jewish hope and the Jewish expectation for us to really appreciate Christmas. 
Remember the context in which Matthew and really all the Gospels come. God's people were in exile. Things weren't the way it was supposed to be. They hadn't heard from God in 400 years. And God had made all these grand promises about his return and him restoring his people and defeating their enemies and vindicating his own people and blessing them with his presence. They didn't know that. They didn't have that here in the first century. They were under the thumb, yet again, of pagan oppressors. They were weary. It was Egypt, and then it was Babylon, and Assyria, and now the Greco-Romans. So the question, the prayer was, when will God make good on his promises? When will God return and restore, just like he said he would? Like the prophets promised. We actually sing this prayer every year around this time. Oh, come. Oh, come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel that mourns in lonely exile here until the Son of God appear. And what Matthew wants us to know is the Son of God has appeared. Exile's over. God has returned, and he is restoring his people just like the prophets of old had promised. But it wasn't in the way that they expected. Remember the type of Messiah that the Jewish people wanted. What were they going to do to the Gentiles? What was this Messiah going to do? He was going to crush them physically. That's what they wanted. They had this hope for a militaristic Messiah, but this king doesn't work that way. He didn't come to take lives, but to give his life for others. That's the kind of kingdom he's bringing in. That's why the disciples were so confused all the time. Listen to the way Jesus put it in Luke 17. Jesus, being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them, the kingdom is not coming in ways that can be observed, nor will they say, look, here it is or there. For behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. See, Jesus is king and he is ruling and reigning, but he's extending his rule spiritually in this age. As he puts it in John 18, my kingdom's not from this world. And so the kingdom is dawning in the work of Jesus, but it's not in the way they expected, beginning right here in Matthew 2 with his first guests. And so let's walk through Matthew 2, 1 to 12 together, and there's really three main characters. You have Jesus, of course, and you have Herod, and you have the Magi. So let's look at Matthew chapter 2, verse 1. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, Behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. Here you have a bunch of names and places, and that's going to be the case throughout all the Gospels. Geography and names are important because, of course, this is real history. And Jesus comes during the time of King Herod. King Herod ruled from 37 to 4 B.C., and then many of his sons would rule. And that statement, though, is actually loaded. It's yet another indicator that things aren't the way it's supposed to be. King Herod is no king. Herod the Great was an Idumean. Therefore, he's unqualified to be the king of Israel. Herod the Great was not so great. In fact, he was as ungodly as they come. He wasn't ruling the way the law told him to rule. He had killed three of his sons in order to hang on to the crown. Caesar Augustus said it's better to be one of Herod's pigs than one of Herod's sons. And so it shows that not all was well with the Jewish people. They're still in exile. God had not yet made good 
on his promises. They were being ruled by a pagan nation. Isaiah starts in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. Jeremiah starts in the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah. Amos starts with in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. Matthew, in the days of Herod, the king. You can almost hear the heartbreak in Matthew's words. And these magi from the east come to Jerusalem. And this word for magi, it's magos. And it can actually mean a range of things. It can mean great ones or dream interpreters, mystics, astrologers, astronomers, visionaries. It's where we get our word magician from. So think about modern day New Agers, tarot card readers, Eastern mystics. And this is not a good thing from the Jewish perspective. In fact, we see in the book of Acts a couple of conversions of these magos, these magi, these magicians. Remember Simon? Maybe you remember in Acts chapter 13, you have Bar-Jesus, who was a magos, same word, and he's called a false prophet. And then there's Elimus, the magician, magos, who tries to stop the message of the gospel from going forward. Paul says, you're a son of the devil. You're an enemy of all righteousness. You're one who makes crooked the straight paths of the Lord. And so this is not a good thing. These magi aren't good people. These magi are people that encouraged others to look not to the creator for guidance, but to the created order. And so these people, they're surprising guests at the birthday party of the Messiah. But it shouldn't surprise us if we paid attention to Matthew chapter 1, right? Remember that genealogy and all the riffraff there? What we're learning right from the start is the mercy of God is wide. And I hate to mess up your nativity scenes, but we don't know for sure that they were at the manger and we don't know for sure that they were kings and we don't even know for sure that there were three of them. Now there were three gifts, so it's you know, probably safe to conclude that there were three of them, but there might've been a posse of 25 for all we know. I actually don't know a whole lot about them. This is what we have. In the middle ages, they received names, uh, Casper, Melchor, and Balthazar. What we do know is they came from the east, probably Babylonia. We've been a long journey, many weary miles. Look at verse 2. They came saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. So these eastern magi, they're looking for this king of the Jews. And the real Christmas miracle is men stopping to ask for directions. <laughs> Initially, they probably thought Herod had it, baby. Herod, the king of the Jews. And this star had risen and God showed them that he had been born and they were compelled to come worship him. And so this star guided them. You know, it's interesting, my, my, uh, my process every week, I'm so privileged to be able to spend most of my week in this book. And I start and I read and I reread and I read and I reread the passage. And then I'll go and try to get help from other believers, other commentators. If I've missed any insight from New Testament scholars. And sadly, half the time, they're skeptics these days. And so it's just fascinating for people to try to come up with some natural explanation here. Well, you know, it was probably a comet. Or there's another theory. Well, it might have been the alignment of the stars. Because we know around that time that that happened as well. And I'm like, can we not just take God at his word? It's filled with supernaturalism. In fact, in the chapter before, there was a virgin conception for crying out loud. God can move a star. I think it's what he did. And so he guides them. He can manipulate the stars. Natural law are merely divine habits. He's sovereign over them. And so he leads these kings from the east to flock to Jerusalem to worship this king. 
Now, on first glance, we may not think a whole lot of this. It's a familiar story. But as we dig a little bit deeper, it's actually filled with prophetic significance. Remember that I shared that one of Matthew's goals is to show that we really can't understand this Jesus without understanding our Old Testament. 262 allusions to the Old Testament in Matthew. 54 direct quotations. What he wants us to see every week will be that this Jesus is the culmination of Israel. The story of the Bible finds its climax in the story of Jesus. And so this idea of these Easterners, these Gentiles, these pagans, these kings coming to Jerusalem to worship the God of Israel, it's actually filled with prophetic background. So much so, I'm not even sure which one Matthew has in mind. I think it's probably two main ones, but I'll read a few. The first story that comes to mind is the Queen of Sheba. You remember her? Visiting Solomon, the son of David. First Kings chapter 2 says this. First Kings chapter 10, verse 2. This Queen of Sheba, she comes to Jerusalem with a very great retinue with camels bearing spices and very much gold and precious stones. And when she came to Solomon, she told him all that was on her mind. A little bit later in chapter 10 and verse 9, she says, Blessed be the Lord your God who has delighted in you and set you on the throne of Israel because the Lord loved Israel forever and he has made you king that you may execute justice and righteousness. Then she gave the king 120 talents of gold and a very great quantity of spices and precious stones. Never Again came such an abundance of spices as these that the Queen of Sheba gave to King Solomon. You have this royal eastern pagan traveling to honor and gives gifts to the son of David. And of course, Jesus, a little bit later in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 12, says this, The Queen of the South will rise over the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. But there's so many others, prophecies about Gentiles coming to Jerusalem to honor God. Let me read just, just a few from uh, Isaiah and then a few others. I had to exercise great self-restraint in reading Old Testament passages to you this morning. But let me read from Isaiah's prophecy in chapter 2. Verse 2, it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills and all the nations shall flow to it. And many people shall come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord to the house of the God of Jacob that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. Or as Nathan read in Isaiah 55, let me read again, Isaiah 55, verse 3. Incline your ear and come to me here that your soul may live, and I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. Behold, I made him a witness to the peoples, a leader and a commander for the peoples. Behold, you shall call a nation that you do not know and a nation that did not know you shall run to you because of the Lord your God and the Holy One of Israel. For he has glorified you. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. 
think Matthew definitely had Isaiah chapter 60 in mind, a prophecy about the future glory of the people of God. Listen to these words from Isaiah's future, finding fulfillment here. Isaiah 60 verse 1, Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth, and thick darkness the people's. But the Lord will arise upon you, and his glory will be seen upon you. And nations shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. Lift up your eyes all around and see. They all gather together. They come to you. Your son shall come from afar, and your daughter shall be carried on the hip. Then you shall see and be radiant. Your heart shall thrill and exult because of the abundance of the sea shall be turned to you. The wealth of the nations shall come to, to you. A multitude of camels shall cover you. The young camels of Midian and Ephah. All those from Sheba shall come. They shall bring gold and frankincense and shall bring good news, the praises of the Lord. The prophet Micah in chapter 4 prophesies real similarly to Isaiah. And Matthew's going to quote Micah 5 here in the next verses, but listen to Micah 4. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and it shall be lifted up above the hills and peoples shall flow to it. And many nations shall come and say, come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. The psalmist prophesies about this coming king, this coming son of David in Psalm 72. Let me read just a few verses from there. Verse 8, about this coming Davidic king, may he have dominion from sea to sea, from the river to the ends of the earth. May desert tribes bow down before him, his enemies lick the dust. May the kings of Tarshish and of the coastlands render him tributes. May the kings of Sheba and Seba bring gifts. May all kings fall down before him, all nations serve him and then look down at verse 15 long may he live may gold of Sheba be given to him may prayer be made for him continually and blessings invoked for him all the day verse 17 may his name endure forever his fame continue as long as the sun may people be blessed in him all nations call him blessed. We see the same thing in Zechariah chapter 8. We see the same thing in Jeremiah chapter 3. Matthew wants us to know right here from the start that this good news, this gospel of the kingdom, this Messiah promised and prophesied long ago is not just for Israel, but for all people. I think we take that for granted too much. And these magi from the east are the first fruits of the Gentiles, many more would stream to Jerusalem and to worship Israel's king. And this star shows that this is also a fulfillment of Balaam's prophecy in Numbers. You remember Balaam? Balaam also was this visionary, this Gentile from the east. In fact, Philo, who was not a Christian, but he was an early Jewish philosopher, he calls Balaam a magos. 
And he travels to the west with two servants. So there were three of them headed west. And listen to his prophecy. And as I read it, this word that the ESV translates for come up is the same word for rise that's used by Matthew in chapter 2, verse 2 and verse 9. This star that rises, comes up. Listen to what Balaam said. He says, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. It shall crush the forehead of Moab and break down all the sons of Sheth. Could it be that Balaam, this Eastern visionary, shared this prophecy with his fellow Eastern mystic colleagues? Could it be that there was talk in the East about this coming king, this coming star, this coming scepter, so that when that star finally rises, they're ready and willing. They pack their bags and hit the road. The king is here. Look at verse 3. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled. And all Jerusalem with him, and assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. This news here, it, it disturbs King Herod, the king of Israel. And he should know these things, right? But instead, he has to gather the smart people up, all the Bible scholars, the theologians, and to, to learn more about when and how this Messiah would come. Here we have the first prophecy conference. And he consulted with the chief priests and the scribes about this coming Messiah. They probably read to him all kinds of passages. One of the favorites was Isaiah. He probably read about this coming king that says, of the increase of his government, there will be no end. That's a bad take for Herod. Because if this child is king, if this child is Lord, that means what? Herod's not. So this baby is a threat. And so Herod is troubled. But notice, it's not just Herod. It says, verse 3 says, all Jerusalem with him. In a really sad, really tragic turn of events, what we will see is that not just King Herod, but the people of Israel are threatened by their own king. In fact, Matthew will use really similar language towards the end of his book, towards the crucifixion. In verse 24, when Pilate saw, chapter 27, verse 24, when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, Pilate, again, this pagan ruler who actually has more sympathy for the king than the people of Israel. Gaining nothing, rather, a riot was beginning. He took water and he washed his hands before the crowd saying, I'm innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. And, quotes, all the people answered, his blood be on us and our children. Look at verse 5. Matthew chapter 2. They told him in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. We're going to see this all over Matthew. For so it is written by the prophet, as it is written, as the prophet said, as the scripture said. And here he quotes Micah, the fifth chapter, some 700 years ago, who prophesied this coming ruler would be born in the little town of Bethlehem. 
And remember, I just quoted Micah 4 that said that the nations would flow to the mountain of the Lord. The nations, pagans, would flock to Zion to worship the king who was born in Bethlehem. But actually here in verse 6, it's a combination of prophecies. The gospel writers will often do this. We have Micah, but we also have probably a quote from 2 Samuel chapter 5. If you know your Bibles, that's just two chapters before the covenant with David, the promise that David would have a son who would rule forever. And notice what it says. In times past, when Saul was king over us, it was you who led out and brought in Israel. And the Lord said to you, you shall be, David, shepherd of my people Israel, and you shall be prince over Israel. So all the elders of Israel came to the king at Hebron and King David made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord and they anointed David king over Israel. What Matthew really wants us to get is Jesus is the son of David. Jesus is the fulfillment of all the promises of this coming kingdom that would have no ends. But this also is an allusion to Ezekiel chapter 34. One of my favorite Christmas passages. Let me read from verse 11. For thus says the Lord God, so this is a prophecy, and notice it's God saying what he's going to do. Behold, I myself will search for my sheep. He'll be the shepherd. He'll seek them out. As a shepherd seeks out his flock when he's among his sheep that have been scattered, so I will seek out my sheep and I will rescue them from all places where they've been scattered on a day of clouds and thick darkness. And I will bring them out from the peoples and gather them from the countries and I will bring them into their own land and I will feed them on the mountains of Israel by the ravines and in all the inhabited places of the country. I will feed them with good pasture and on the mountain heights of Israel shall be their grazing lands. There they shall lie down in good grazing land and on rich pasture they shall feed on the mountains of Israel. I myself, God says, will be the shepherd of my sheep and I myself will make them lie down declares the Lord. I will seek the lost and I will bring back the strayed and I will bind up the injured and I will strengthen the weak and the fat and the strong and I will destroy, I will feed them in justice. But a little bit later, he continues talking about how God himself will be the shepherd. But a little bit later, notice what he says in verse 23. And I will set over them one shepherd, my servant, David. At the time Ezekiel gives this prophecy, David's been long dead. I will set over them my one shepherd, my servant David, and he shall feed them. He shall feed them and be their shepherd. And I, the Lord, will be their God. And my servant David shall be prince among them. I am the Lord. I have spoken. And so as we hear this prophecy, the question is, okay, God's going to come. He'll be the shepherd. He'll shepherd his people. God's going to come. God's going to come. Wait, David's going to come? Who's going to come be the shepherd? Will it be God or will it be David? Yes, because the miracle of Christmas is that God himself has come in the person of Jesus, the true son of David. Look at Matthew chapter 2, verse 7. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem saying, go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. See, Herod, Herod, Herod is worried. He's a fake king. 
This Messiah is a son of David. So he's learning about this coming king and he needs to extinguish him. He says he's going to join him in worship. That's a lie. That's a ruse we'll learn. And notice Herod says, look for the child. He can't even bring himself to save the king. Look at verse 9. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen, when it rose, went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. So the star leads them to the place where the child king was. So we sing, O star of wonder, star of night, star with royal beauty bright, westward leading, still proceeding, guide us to thy perfect light. Last week we saw God's sovereignty over history, even really messy stories in the genealogy. And now we see God's sovereignty over the stars. And they take him to a specific house. Probably a little bit later, Mary and Joseph were settled in, but it could have been still in a manger. The typical Palestinian home would have a manger really close in the vicinity of the home. And they're overjoyed. Matthew just piles up the adjectives. They rejoiced exceedingly with great joy, exceeding joy. They've made it to the king. Look at verse 11. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshiped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Their journey is finally complete. They've found the Christ child. And what do these visionaries from the East do when they meet this Jesus? They bow down and worship. Just a footnote. Notice Mary doesn't receive anything close to worship. This would have been the time to do it. She doesn't. Just the child. Mary's awesome. Mary's faithful. But she's not deity. She's not worthy of worship. Doesn't receive prayers. And these Eastern mystics are clearly really important. They thought it was worth a treacherous trip to meet and honor a newborn king. And apparently they had no trouble getting a word with the king of Israel. And here they are, these important, dignified people bowing down before a baby in a manger. It's not what you would expect. And we're going to see that all through this gospel. This reversal of worldly values. The upside down kingdom. Even here, pagan kings from the east bow down and worship. But the key leaders of Israel reject him. And these magi, they offer gifts. Gift giving at Christmas has its origins here. Don't let any Scrooges tell you gift giving got pagan origins. And what do they bring? They bring gold, they bring frankincense, they bring myrrh. Gold for royalty, frankincense for divinity, and myrrh for burial. Gold, of course, was and is really the king of metals, the metal of kings. Pointing to Jesus as king. And ironically, they probably could have used this gold to help fund the trip to get away from Herod when they go to Egypt. And frankincense, of course, we know it's essential oils. It would become Mary's side hustle later. (laughs) Frankincense was this expensive perfume from southern Arabia and Somalia, and it was used in the temple all the time for worship, pointing to Jesus as priest. Myrrh was a, a cosmetic fragrance most, most usually used for embalming dead bodies. 
But here, for a baby, for the celebration of a birth and not a death, the myrrh points to the death of Jesus. Jesus is Savior. Christmas points to Easter. And so he's the king, he's the priest, he's the Savior who receives gifts and worship from these Gentiles from the east. And then they head home. But they're warned, don't go the same way, don't go Herod's way. They would take the back roads home, and guess what's going to go with them to the east? The message of the gospel of the kingdom. The genealogy in Matthew 1 that included sinners and notorious sinners and and Gentiles and women, it prepared us for the universal scope of the reign of this king. But here we're a little bit surprised that right off the bat with these Gentile kings coming to see this newborn king of Israel, from the very beginning, Gentiles coming to worship, which is really important for us because probably none of us in this room are Jewish. So we ought to be grateful that the global purpose of God is the glad praise of Jesus among all the nations of the world us included in Abilene, Texas. So how should we respond? Briefly, five ways. First, like these wise men here, if you're not a Christian, seek the Lord. Wise men still seek him. Truthfully, though, you know, the Bible teaches that no one seeks the Lord because of our sin. And so if you're here and you're interested in the things of God, he's probably already seeking you. You're not here on accident. So the church is saying, Jesus sought me when I was a stranger. Or as the old hymn puts it, I sought the Lord. And afterward, I knew he moved my soul to seek him, seeking me. It was not I that found, O Savior, true. No, I was found of thee. And so if you're here, trust the Lord. Turn from your own way and your own sin and trust in Jesus Christ, the king who is ruling now and will rule for eternity. If you have questions about that, Let us know. Nothing more we like to talk about than trusting in Christ. Have you found him? Do you know that you found him? If you have, second, or if he's found you, the proper response is the response of these magi. It's worship. It's worship. And here at Southside, remember, worship is so much more than this hour. This hour is really important within these walls, but this is really just a launching pad for worship seven days a week. Make it your aim, not just to worship in him here, but in everything you do. This is the goal. Worship Jesus in everything you do. In everything you do, make it your aim to please him. Third response is to give like these wise men. Offer him your gifts. I'm not just talking about money. I'm talking about offering everything that you are, your time, your, your talent, your treasure. Offer, this is really just another way of saying worship. This is just another point on worship. Worship him with your life. If we were to look into your schedule, would we be able to sense, yeah, Jesus is her Lord. Jesus is his Lord. Does your time reflect your priorities? increasingly a hard question. Do you give of your talents? Each of you, the Bible says, is gifted, and the purpose of that gift is to edify the body of Christ. 1 Corinthians 12, edify and build up one another. Are you using your gifts to promote the gospel and build up the church? And of course, your treasure, your stuff, your money. Give to the king who's worthy. Fourth, rejoice. 
Christians ought to be the most joyful people there are, even in the midst of 2020, even in the midst of a pandemic. You know why? Because our circumstances don't determine our joy. He does. That's why we sing. We don't, we don't stand on shifting sand. We stand on the solid rock. So regardless of how things are out here, we can rejoice with exceeding joy. Why? Because God has made good on his promise. As Cody showed us last week, because Isaiah 7 promised that a virgin would conceive and bear a son. They would call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. What God wants us to know is all these promises are coming to fulfillment. God has returned, and he's returned in the son of David, who has got himself, Jesus. He's making good on his promises. So we should rejoice. Rejoice, rejoice. Emmanuel has come to thee, O Israel. Christianity is a religion of joy because of the faithfulness of God to unworthy and undeserving sinners like us. Then the fifth way to respond to Christmas is like these three kings to carry the gospel with you. Now the work of Christians is kind of like the work of this star is to lead people to the king. In many ways, these magi really embody what we're about here at Southside, don't they? Three of our core values. We worship Jesus in all of life. We serve the king by serving the church. We give sacrificially, really four of them, we're committed to live on mission. So God has been good. God has been faithful. It's what this season is about. And our response ought to be to seek Jesus, to worship Jesus, to give to his mission, to rejoice in him and tell others about him. Emmanuel has come. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your many, 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 many promises. I pray that as we walk through Matthew, we would see the significance of your faithfulness in sending your son. Your faithfulness is so many promises. And we see that your work here in the first century is bringing, bringing so many threads and streams of redemptive history that flow to the feet of this baby in a manger. You've kept your promises and many, many from the east, many Gentiles have flocked to worship the king of Israel, us included. God, as we work through this gospel that's so transitional from the old covenant to the new covenant, would you produce in us maybe a gratitude that we've never had in the fact that we're here and we're not Jewish by ethnic descent, but you've included, you've brought in your kingdom to include anyone, regardless of background, regardless of ethnicity, who trust in Jesus Christ, Jews, Gentiles, anyone. This is the Savior of the world. And may we have a new and fresh appreciation of your word, seeing increasingly that Jesus is the hero of this story. Help us to rightly respond to Christmas, rightly respond to the incarnation by lives lived for your glory. Help us, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.